Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello. Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and I'm so happy that you joined me for today's show. Before we begin with our topic, let me give you some announcements. First of all, my new course, for uh, continuing education credits is on DVD. It's called Is It Autism? Recognizing and Treating Toddlers with Red Flags for ASD. I am thrilled, just thrilled that it's out uh, and you can get, if you're on my email list, you've gotten an email about it. Um, If you're not on the email list, you should be (laughs) because that's how you get the information first with anything that's published at my website, teachmetotalk.com, but take advantage of that pre-sale pricing. That ends on Monday. Today is Thursday, May 5th, so the pre-sale price ends on Monday, May 9th, so get yourself a discount. It's fantastic information if you are a pediatric speech-language pathologist like I am or another kind of therapist who treats toddlers. We see autism every single day of our careers, and sometimes those are the kids that we struggle with the most because there are so many core deficits with autism. And if we are just treating the language piece or the speech piece, we are really, 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 really missing what could be the most important part of treatment for a child. So not only does the first part of the course walk through that official diagnostic criteria so that you will be so much more confident in your ability to recognize autism. The second part is even better (laughs) because it focuses on intervention and not intervention from an academic or textbook kind of focus or not even when you go to a continuing education course and they give you all the theory. This is the down and dirty. This is how you do it. This is how it looks. This is what you do when it doesn't work. These are your priorities, and we're going to walk through 10 different treatment approaches or strategies or however you want to think about it, but 10 different areas of focus for a toddler who's exhibiting red flags for autism. And, guys, let me just say these strategies really are almost supersede that. So if you have kids that are borderline or kids that are you think, I don't know about this, this is a little bit more than a language delay, but I'm not quite sure it reaches the the threshold for receiving a formal diagnosis of autism, these these are the the approaches that will help a child move beyond that. And I know I've gotten a lot of emails in this last week since we announced the pre-sale Uh, last Friday, lots of emails from parents saying, is this course appropriate for me? And let me just say, that is really dependent on, one, how much information you want, because some of it, frankly, is, well, all of it is directed toward professionals, but if you are a committed parent, if you are doing everything you can to help your child and if you feel like, man, this is something I'm interested in, I wonder what those therapist people talk about when they go to courses. Yes, then this course will be appropriate for you too, and I know a lot of parents have ordered it. You know who's ordering it a lot? Parents from overseas or parents outside the United States because they do not have the access to services like we do here in the USA. And so I've had a lot of parents uh, who have emailed me for that and who've said, I'm going to get it. Or a lot, you know what a lot of parents are doing? They're saying, I don't know that I want part one, but tell me about part two. Will this help me help my child? Yes, 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 yes. It will help you particularly if you are in the early stages of this, particularly if your child is not engaging with you regularly, like it's hard to get his attention, or he doesn't understand always what you mean, or he's really not using words meaningfully. This course will help you. So take a look at the information about that. It's on my website at teachmetotalk.com, and I just invite you to get yourself some great help today by ordering that course. All right, second thing I want to say, let me just kind of – Uh, talk about this a little bit. I am just in full throng production mode and have so many new resources coming out this year. I've already talked about that course, Is It Autism? Recognizing and Treating uh, Toddlers with Red Flags for ASD. But I'm going to have a little therapy manual directly related to the 10 different approaches or focus areas so that you can take that information that you'll learn about in the course 
And then it really breaks it down with these are my favorite activities to target those 10 areas. So that's not a part of the course. It's going to be a separate project, which I believe will be ready June-ish, so middle of June. So kind of keep that in mind. I have some other fantastic things coming out this year too, so I'm so, so, so excited about that. Let me also mention one other thing. I'm getting lots of requests to speak to groups throughout the United States and even Canada, so I'm so excited about that. And if you want me to come speak to your group or in your area or have some questions about that, shoot me an email at laura, L-A-U-R-A, at teachmetotalk.com. I'd love to hear from you and see what we can work out to come to your area. All right, let's move on to today's show. We are continuing our series with the skills, the 11 skills toddlers must use before words emerge. Today we are on number seven. And it's, today we're talking about receptive language. And what I called it in the show title is understands what words mean. Because sometimes we say receptive language to parents and they don't quite get what we're talking about. Speech pathologists may refer to this as receptive language, as language comprehension, as auditory, meaning hearing what a kid hears, auditory comprehension. And it is one of the most under-recognized issues for why a child is not really communicating. And as I always say, every time I get a chance to you know, get up on my little soapbox about receptive language, <laughs> I think it's the most overlooked delay in early intervention services and pediatric therapy services for children because so many times we just assume that a child understands what we're saying. And here's the kicker. In, I mean, I think in a vast majority of children who qualify for early intervention services, meaning through a state program or through a local agency, the vast majority of children who meet the criteria for eligibility have some degree of receptive language delay. Now, that doesn't mean every kid, because we certainly know we have lots of little friends who are who under who do understand everything, but it's a really, really, or or at an age appropriate developmental level, but it's really, really, really something that parents miss all the time. And I, you know, I kind of use this as a, a, no matter what I'm talking about in live courses, and it's it's a universal experience. And I use this no matter what course I'm teaching because every therapist that I've ever met can relate to this statement. So many times we will ask a parent, how do, well does your child understand language? What does he understand? And I mean, I, I do this in courses where I have 500 people in the room, and I'll say, say it with me, ladies, what does mom say? And I'll say, he understands, and the whole crowd shouts back everything. Because 90% of parents that we meet in early intervention will have missed that their child has a significant receptive language delay. And sometimes you'll think as a therapist, well, mom and dad spend all day every day with this kid or you know, his when they can, when they're with him, when they're not at work, you know, when he's with them. Surely, surely, surely if they think he understands everything he really does. First of all, let's just talk about that for a minute. There is no way that a 12-month, an 18-month, a 24-month, a 36-month old child understands everything. There's, there's no way. I mean, that's why they go to school <laughs> for 12 years through high school and then beyond, right? So to say something like he understands everything, and I know that a lot of times parents think, oh, she's just kind of, you know, meaning, does he understand what I ask him to do or does he understand everyday conversation? Yes, that's what we're asking, but parents miss constantly when a child really doesn't understand directions and requests. And so, again, I'm not saying that to slam parents at all because Parents are not supposed to understand language development like a professional or especially a speech language pathologist would. I mean, we've devoted our whole educational experience post high school to this. We, our whole careers revolve around this stuff. And there's no way that if you're a parent, if you're a, uh, a firefighter, if you're an accountant, if you're a marketing person, if you're even a teacher, even in education, there's no way you're supposed to understand about all this. You've got things in your job that you do that I will never, ever, ever understand. So don't fault yourself, and I, here's my point, I'm not faulting parents for not recognizing that their children don't understand a lot of what's said to them, but if you're a therapist and you're really depending on a parent to tell you exactly what a kid understands without you taking a really close look at that, 
you're probably going to be spinning your wheels for a while if there is a receptive language problem because you are missing a critical component of why that child is not talking. And let me just say that again <laughs> because I want to be sure that everyone listening to the show gets it. It is a significant factor for lots of children, receptive language is, in why they are not communicating, why they are not yet using real words. They don't say words because they don't really understand words. And so when you can identify that that's what's going on with a child, you will redirect your efforts, you will double down on helping them understand familiar words, and then guess what? Their expressive skills improve. I have seen it over and over and over and over in my career where, let me just tell you, especially when I'm not the first speech pathologist, especially when I'm not getting the first crack at the kid and a parent is bringing a child to me for a second opinion, a seventh opinion, a 17th opinion, and I'm seeing a kid who's seen lots and lots of other people and they've focused a lot on expressive language, which, again, let me just say, a lot of therapists really do kind of believe, well, this is speech therapy and I focus on speech and the parent says he wants him to talk, so that's all I'm going to focus on. Oh, you know, that kind of drives me berserk when I hear that <laughs> because it's our job as professionals to uncover why speech and language skills aren't progressing. It's our job to go in and say, hey, I know he's not talking and I know that whatever – as a parent, you're going to tell me what you, you think is going on, and that's fantastic, and I want that input, and I welcome that input, and I relish what you have to say about your own child because you will always know him better than I do. But <laughs> when someone has not pointed out to a parent how important understanding language is and how important developing comprehension skills are, parents don't get that and parents don't know that. And so it's our job as pediatric early childhood development specialists and SLPs to really help a parent understand and prioritize receptive language. And again, I've seen it over and over and over in my career where other people have seen the kid first and they've just worked on their expressive goals and people are wondering, eh, why isn't this moving along faster? And then I'll help a parent kind of reset and say, well, I think that a big component in this talking piece is that he really doesn't understand. So we're not going to have a lot of expectations right now for output or expectations right now for what he's going to say to us. Our focus is going to be really, 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 really helping him understand what words mean. And that involves a lot of direct teaching, guys. And, again, so many times direct teaching has kind of fallen out of favor in our current environment, the current current recommended practices that we have because we want to put everything in natural environments and natural everyday context, which is fantastic, and we're going to talk a ton about that. But somehow people have thought that there's no direct teaching involved in that and that the kid is just going to learn through exposure and these everyday experiences. And that is true, but listen, let me tell you when it gets really, really, really effective. It's when we teach parents how to include direct teaching strategies within the context of those daily routines. That's when we see the most difference. And so when a parent comes and we're talking about why their child's not talking, <laughs> and we uncover that there's even a mild or to moderate expressive language delay. So there doesn't have to be like, you know, a, a significant problem even though we see that and that's certainly a factor but even a mild receptive language problem can really prohibit progress in a child's expressive language skills and so we have to really really refocus parents and that's a big part of what I do in initial visits with families and when I'm you know brought onto a team to really as an extra set of eyes as a consultant and to really kind of help refocus what everybody's doing I spend a lot of time talking about receptive language because it's something that we miss a lot and time after time after time helping everybody reset to focus on okay let's teach a child what these words mean and let's help a child really link and make associations between what the word is and what the object is or the experience or the event or what or person you know whatever it is that we're trying to teach them how to understand when we back up and focus on receptive language then it is shocking the amount of progress that a child can make expressively just by refocusing our efforts and refocusing on 
teaching him to understand. Now, receptive language is closely tied to cognition. And what do I mean by cognition? Cognition is how a kid learns, how he thinks, how he remembers, how he plans. So all of that, you know, when we think about, parents kind of think about it with how smart a kid is. And so it's not exactly, <laughs> I don't want to determine, I don't want to really use that language, but that's what a lot of parents kind of refer to it. But really how he thinks, how he learns, how he plans, how he attends, those are all cognitive processes. And so receptive language is layered on that. It is impossible for a child to have a significant cognitive delay or cognitive deficit and have normal receptive language. Yet I've seen that written on reports. <laughs> I've seen that where someone, particularly if you live in a state like mine, where you'll have a primary level evaluator complete the initial assessments to, to determine if the child is eligible to receive early intervention services, or, or let's just make it more broad than this. Let's talk about pediatricians. Many, many, many times a pediatrician will recognize that there are significant issues with how a child is developing cognitively, yet somehow miss that language link. And again, it's, I, I don't want to say every pediatrician does that because that's not the truth, but some have. And it really has happened too within other disciplines. I've, I've read reports where like a physical therapist or an occupational therapist, and honestly, I'm going to just say, I've seen it with speech pathologists too, where we know that the child has significant cognitive issues, meaning that there are differences in how this child learns. There may be a medical condition which we know would cause some level of intellectual impairment, yet when you talk to or when you talk to the parents and they say the child understands everything and the therapist just kind of reports it that way and they just kind of assume it because again they're going with this parent knows, they know it better than I do, which is a good position, but they don't really take the time to sort it out and they miss that there are things that the child doesn't understand. So we have to recognize that that can happen across the board, not only with what a parent says, but professionals miss it sometimes too. So if your child, if you're a parent and you're listening and if your child is not talking, I urge you today to consider how well he or she understands language and processes what he or she is hearing. Because if that's not something, if they are not regularly following your directions, if you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they can, and, and not only that they can, but that they do complete a lot of your requests in daily routines, that's one of the reasons they're not talking, because they don't understand words well enough. And kids always have to understand language before they can communicate meaningfully. Sometimes other disciplines miss that. They look at language or look at speech as kind of a behavior rather than considering, and just like anything else, rather than considering all of the factors and all of the contributions that have to occur before we hear those words, not only that a kid just kind of parrot what we've said, but before those words become meaningful, before a child can really, 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 really demonstrate that he understands that he knows what we're talking about. And again, guys, you can't just make that assumption. You can't just go with it. Well, of course he understands everything. You don't know that unless you see him really, really, really participating in following your verbal directions. Pointing to things when you ask him, completing simple requests like put your shoes away or go, go give your cup to daddy so he can get you some more juice or things like it's time to take a bath and then the child runs to the bathroom or, you know, let's clean up these toys and he walks over and begins to put his little toys away in the basket. Guys, those are not unrealistic expectations for an 18-month to a 2-year-old. And so the very, 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 very simplest and best way to decide if a child has a receptive language problem is just to look at how well he's following directions in everyday, command, in everyday life. How well does he do what his mother asks and dad and brothers and sisters and everybody else ask him to do? How does he complete requests? And so, again, kids should be doing that Here's the truth. Typically developing kids are really doing that between 12 and 15 months pretty well. But even if you were looking at the kids kind of on the slower end of development, so our, our late walkers, our late talkers, 
they should be following commands too by 15 to 18 months. You should not have an 18-month-old that you think is typical who's not following simple everyday directions. And that's just the most basic way you can look at it. So again, if you're a parent who's listening to the show for information and you're still kind of wondering, you know, what is going on with my kid? I don't understand. And he or she may or may not be in speech therapy yet. This is something you can really, really, really make a difference with at home, even if you're waiting on therapy to start, or even if your therapist isn't on board with this, even if your therapist has kind of taken the view of, I'm just going to focus on talking. You can drive the boat on this if you're a mom or a dad or a grandparent listening to the show. You can decide, man, we've kind of missed this receptive language thing. I'm going to take this on myself. This is my part of his treatment plan. I'm going to help him learn how to understand language. It's huge, guys. It's just huge. And so I challenge <laughs> therapists to take a second look at a child's receptive language skills. And we all test it. We all measure it when we're in an assessment. But you really, really, really can't write something stupid like I used to do at the beginning of my career. Parents report the receptive language is normal. Even when I knew there was a delay because my assessment tool told me there was a delay, but I just kind of took it as, eh, off day, eh, he's two, he doesn't do what people say, he's stubborn, he's a toddler. I did, I, early, early, really early in my career, I miss this all the time. I mean, I can, and I specifically can remember children that haunted me because I didn't get on board with receptive language until I'd seen them for several weeks or sometimes several months. And so, boy, once I learned that, once I corrected the, the error of my ways, <laughs> it, uh, that lesson never has never, 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 never left me because it's so, so, so important. So if you're, I've challenged you to think about that if you're a therapist. If you're a parent, I challenge you <laughs> to really take a close look at what your child understands. So let's look at the basic skills that a child should possess uh, before we can realistically expect words from a receptive language perspective. Now, we've already talked about the following familiar directions, but let's back up and talk about things that happened before then. Recognizing really, really familiar words. So that would be when you say to him, where's daddy? He should look for daddy. Or if you have a family pet that everybody, you know, your dog's name is Buster. You should be able to say, where's Buster? Show me Buster. Let's find Buster. And your child should stop and look around the room. You know, where is Buster? He should let you know that he understands. Those kinds of things that we talked about before, following those familiar directions, he should be doing that again that by 18 months old, hands down, he should be following those really, really simple directions. Other kinds of things, he should get things that you ask for. So he should understand familiar objects. So you should be able to say to him, if he likes playing ball and you have balls in your home and that's something that's familiar to him, you should be able to say, go get the ball. Where's your ball? Let's play ball. And he should be able to follow that request. He should, unless he's totally engrossed in something else, and even if that's happening, you should be able to pull him away from that enough so that you can direct his attention and you say to him, go get your ball. And he should happily run away or run away, go away, walk away, reach, get the ball and bring it back to you. So, again, understanding familiar words is important. And by familiar words, I mean things that a child sees every day in his everyday environment. He has to have heard the word, though, a lot for you to categorize it as familiar. So let's just say that you've gotten a new toy. Let's say he has just gotten into a new kind of um, niche or a new thing that he likes. And so if it's, let's say he was attracted to something like a robot, a little robot toy at the store. Robot's probably a new word for him. He, you know, if he's two or 18 months or, you know, three, whatever, but he's never seen a toy like the robot, and so he saw it, and it's shiny, and it kind of looks cool because of it's, it's boxy. It doesn't really look like a person, but he saw that on the shelf, and he pulled it off, and you were like, hey, okay, let's get that. He, let's say he doesn't have a lot of experience hearing the word robot. Even if he likes that toy, you've got a link meaning with that word and that toy. Do you get what I'm trying to say here? And so before we can consider the word to be fam a familiar word or a familiar direction, he has to have heard that word dozens of times. So over and over and over and over before we can count that a familiar word. So kids, again, 18 months to 24 months, that's when we see 
a significant increase in what they understand. I mean, so that they are able to follow lots and lots and lots of directions. So by the time a kid is turning 24 months, he should be able to follow a two-step direction. But again, we're kind of backing this down to the 12-month level, 15-month level, 18-month level. So we've got to teach what those familiar words are first. And the way that we teach familiar words is by saying it over and over and over, providing the language model or giving him lots of chances to hear the word and then, as I always like to say, link meaning so that he understands, hey, that cool, shiny silver toy that I just got, mom keeps saying robot. And so <laughs> he learns, oh, when she says that word, that's what this means. So that's what language comprehension is. It's understanding or receptive language, understanding that the word that somebody says is what it represents. So it's becoming symbolic too, so that a kid has to, again, not only like the toy, not only be familiar with the object or the event or whatever, but he's got to understand that the word matches that, the word represents that. So whatever, whenever he hears that word, he knows what you're talking about. And so our first strategy is going to be to talk, to label what a child is doing and what he's paying to it, what he's giving attention to at the moment. Not what you did yesterday, not what you're going to do tomorrow, not what you're going to do five hours from now. What he's looking at right now or what you're showing him right now. Whatever is surrounding him right now. That's what we that's how we best teach receptive language. So that we give him words for what he's paying attention to and what he's doing so that he makes those associations. So again, familiar people familiar objects, familiar events, and by events, I mean actions like swinging, sliding, running, washing, jumping. So again, not just nouns, not just names of things, but we need to consider all words, concepts. Even something like in when you, and out and up and down, so location words, prepositions, those are events if you want to think about it in that way. So we have to label those things too. It's not only about naming or labeling, not only about those nouns. We have to think about everything that has a word. So all kinds of functions, all kinds of um, classes of words. So we need to think about it in that way. And so again, when a child understands what words mean that represent objects and words that represent important people and words that represent toys and words that represent familiar actions and words that represent familiar directives like those location kinds of things, uh, prepositions, those kinds of words, uh, descriptive words. Once a child understands a big variety of those, then following directions becomes easier. So a lot of times it's not that the child you know, isn't trying to make sense of what you're saying. He just doesn't have enough experience and enough, like I said before, direct teaching so that he really, really, really has accurately linked meaning or made an association between what you're saying and what you want him to do or what he's already doing. So that's what we're looking for here. Other kinds of early concepts that children understand, again, right before words emerge, in a typical development we see that, again, at about 12 to 15 months when those first words start coming in, things like understanding what no means or stop, those really um, common directional words that we use to tell a child, hey, you're about to get hurt or, you know, this is not what we're something that we're going to do. So any kind of word like that, like a prohibitive word, no, stop, don't, those kinds of words, those are early targets that we would use when we're looking at a child's receptive language skills. And those are the kinds of words that a child understands before he begins to use words meaningfully. We talked about on last week's show, understanding gestures. And let me just say, I did that show two weeks in a row. And if you listened a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, and thought, oh, okay, the audio quality is so bad, I'm just going to ditch this show. <laughs> I can't stand this, and I do not blame you if you did that because it was horrendous when I tried to listen to it um, because some people emailed me and alerted me to the fact that the quality wasn't good, and I sort of knew that on my own too with just based on some technical things that happened. But I redid that show last week, so if you try to get through the gesture show and it, you just ditched it, 
listen to last week listen to last week's effort and I redid it. So go back and listen to show number two hundred and eighty four if you if you didn't hear the good version. <laughs> the version you could uh hear. Uh, go back and listen to that show. And one of the things we talked about on that show with understanding gestures is helping a child learn how to understand give me commands. And by give me commands, I would mean things like give me the book, give me the car, give me the ball, give me your cup, give me, you know, whatever it is that they're holding or that's immediately surrounding them or something that's so familiar that they can go retrieve it, even if it's in another room. So remember one of the things we said when we're teaching a child give me commands is that for gestures is that we would hold out our hand as a cue to hand it to me, give it to me. Remember that discussion? And again, if you've not heard that show, go back and listen. Because so many of the things that children learn from a receptive language perspective, they learn because of the gesture. They learn because of what they see you do, so your physical movements, and then it's when they link meaning with it. So that's what we're talking about today is that next little step. It's just hearing the word and then knowing what you want them to do. So if you've worked on give me commands with a child, with your hand out, the natural extension of that is going to be not putting your hand out anymore, <laughs> but still asking them to give you what you've requested. So that's another little goal, that other next little step that we're talking about in helping children learn to understand familiar words. Just start to ask them for things that they're holding or for things that are right beside them. If they're sitting on the floor and they're playing with um, a set of cars and blocks, sit down beside them and say, ooh, I see your truck. Look at that truck. Give me truck. Give it to me. And if they have difficulty at that point and can't give it to you, then put your hand out and get them to give it to you. And if they still don't give you the truck, maybe point to the truck. So this is backing up a little bit, using your gestures. You're still going to keep your hand out, but you're going to point to the truck, and you'll say, give me that truck. Give me that truck. I want that truck. Truck. And then if they still don't do it with the cue, take your hand, reach over, grab their little hand, and help them put the truck in your hand. That's how you teach these really, really basics of helping a child learn how to follow familiar directions. And so you'll do it with familiar objects. Body parts is another uh, early receptive language goal. It's something that most parents work on, you know, eyes, nose, mouth. We start talking about those things even when our babies are itty-bitty. So some tips for understanding body parts. You've just got to talk about them a lot. So I do a lot of uh, talking with parents about when is the best time for you to work on body parts and teaching a child what your nose is, where are your arms, you know, show me your feet, I'm going to get your belly. When are the best times to do that? Usually when we're changing a child so that we're already focused on kind of his little body or when we're giving him a bath or when he's getting dressed, you're dressing him. Those are the very, very best times to work on body parts because you're already doing that. Uh, other, Another little tip that I like to use would be to sing the same little songs. So don't just go into your overdrive, what I like to call testing. Where's your nose? Show me your eyes. Where are your fingers? Where's your hair? You know, that drives everybody crazy, <laughs> even a kid who's not talking yet, maybe especially a kid who's not talking yet. So you'll just incorporate these things into your daily routine. So instead of doing all of that testing, focus on teaching with, oh, I'm going to sing a song about your nose or I'm going to play a game about your nose. You know, you could even, and just make it up as you go. You don't need it, this to be, you know, anything that's too hard. You could just sing, you know, going to get your nose, going to get your nose, here I come, here I come, going to get your nose, and then just grab his little nose. Or, you know, same thing. You can use that same little tune. And, again, make it up. Use your own version of that. Play little games. And I like the idea of telling a parent, let's focus on this at bath time and changing time because that builds it in and you don't forget to do that every day if that's something that you're working on helping a child learn. And, and let's just talk about why teaching body parts is important. Kids need to know that they control their little bodies. They need to conceptually understand and master what's going on inside themselves as they mature and get older. And a lot of that really, really begins with knowing what your teeth are and what your, where your hair is and just that basic conceptual kind of level. So that's why body parts are really, really important. I have a therapy tip of the week about teaching body parts from a couple of years ago. I, ho I hope I can remember to link it to this text so that if you are listening and want some further information, 
and further tips and strategies, go back and watch that Therapy Tip of the Week. Let me tell you another good resource is in my book, Teach Me to Play With You. I have several little songs that you can use to teach body parts, so go back and take a look at that if you already have that resource. And if you don't, it's certainly a good one. It's called Teach Me to Play With You. I have some great stuff in my therapy manual, uh, Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, which has an entire huge chapter or section on receptive language. So, again, if you're a therapist and you've not paid enough attention to this or you think, well, you know, I know these things. I know a kid has a receptive language delay, but I don't routinely work on helping him understand language. I'm not really quite sure how to go, what I can do to go about that other than talking to him. (laughs) Get yourself that book because it outlines every receptive goal from under 12 months all the way through 48 months developmentally. So the goal or the milestone is listed and then a whole you know, five or six paragraphs about why that goal is important, how you can teach that goal in therapy, and then what you can talk to a parent about and have a parent do to follow up. So super, super, super resource. So body, teaching body parts, if you need some help with that, that's a great uh, way to do that. Let me, let's talk to about, um, well, let's go on. Let's talk about this thing and then we'll back up to what I was going to tell you about. Helping kids learn how to understand their name. We've talked a a little bit about this on the show, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And is not responding to your own name when you're a a child, that that skill really, 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 really should be firmly entrenched between 9 and 12 months. A child should understand their name. They should routinely look at you. Children first become to be alert and respond to their names even way back at 4 to 6 months when they're typically developing. So if you have a 12-month-old, an 18-month-old, or a 2-year-old who's not responding to his name, That's a big, big, big red flag. Children with autism who go on to be diagnosed with ASD or autism spectrum disorders often don't recognize or don't routinely respond to their names. So it is a pretty big red flag if they're over if they're over 12 months old. Uh, And I could sort of see, okay, kids may not be on the spectrum, uh, but they just have other issues which are creating this uh, gap in what they are learning, and so. You know, a kid could have intellectual challenges or difficulty learning and not be on the autism spectrum. But what I'm trying to say is here, it's a pretty big deal. Typically developing children respond to their names by 12 months old really consistently. So if you have a child who's not doing that, that's something that you need to work on and teach and then just know that's one more thing that lets me know that he's not developing as expected. So some things to teach their names. First of all, you have to say it. A lot of times parents will... They'll kind of resort to using nicknames, and then they wonder, you know, they call them baby or sweetie or honey, which is fantastic and fine, and we all do that. And as, you know, loving adults, we we all do that. But sometimes I'll think, well, you know, I've been here several weeks in a row, and his name is Josh, and I've never really heard you say Josh. So maybe he doesn't know his name as and respond to his name as routinely and frequently as we would like because he doesn't hear it often enough. Some parents only use a child's name when they're in trouble. So they learn <laughs> almost not to respond with, oh, my gosh, oh, she's yelling that again. So there could be a behavioral component, but most of the time it really is just a, a receptive language gap that they don't have. So, so our first thing is help parents use their names so that they hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it. Don't tie it to bad behavior so that they only say their names when they're in trouble. And for a lot of kids, we have to help them learn to respond to their names by making it worth it for them. And what do I mean by that? It's just you've got to reward them for responding when you call them. And some therapists and parents will kind of take a hard line and say, I'm not going to reward my child over every little thing. When it's hard for them, when something is new for them, if they were going to just automatically pick it up, it would have already happened. So when you think about it like that, you think, gosh, I've got to give him a reason to respond to his name. So come up with some little games or some little activities so that every time he looks at you or comes to you when you call him, he gets something he likes. So, And it doesn't have to be something like, you know, you're – giving him a cookie or you're going to sit down and watch a whole movie because he's responded. I'm talking about a hug or a high five or just a big, you know, looking at your face when you are just absolutely thrilled that he has looked at you. For some children, just that 
social expression of approval, you know, mommy's smiling at me really big and saying, oh, that's so good, you know, and really, really obviously thrilled. And for some kids, especially kids who are on, are on the spectrum, they're not good enough social referencers yet so that they or their interaction skills and even their eye contact is not to the point where your social response or your facial expressions will matter to them yet. So figure out what it is that he likes. If he likes heavy pressure or, or deep pressure, heavy work, movement, those kinds of kids who really need big sensory input to respond. For those kids, it might be a hug. It might be that you're throwing them up in the air. It might be a tickle. It, whatever it is, whatever they like, do it. And that's how you would teach him his name. You would just reinforce him for responding to you consistently when you call his name. So if he has a favorite toy that he doesn't get to play very often, hold the toy, call his name. When he looks at you, give it to him. Let him play for a few minutes. When he's not going to fall apart, take it back and then do the same thing. When he looks at you, give it to him. You could use snacks in the same way. You could use, like I said, those little uh, movement games in the same way, but that's what you do when you to help a child really, really learn to respond to his name. And I have to always say to parents, don't forget to use their names during really happy times too or with pleasant experiences so they don't get stuck in that little habit of, well, she only says my name when I'm about to be in trouble. So that's another little reminder for you there. All right, we've talked about give me commands. We've talked about understands and know, which comes up every single day in a household with a toddler there are things that they want to do that you don't want them to do they'll get hurt they'll make a mess just for whatever reason you don't want them to do it telling a child no should be something that they hear not all day every day but something that they hear frequently enough so that they learn to understand limits with what it is that they can do and not do Um, another thing that i want to talk about is following familiar directions And we mentioned it before with some little examples with um, retrieving favorite objects. So go get your book or um, bring me Woody. You know, that's a character from a Toy Story movie. Or, you know, whatever it is that they like, that's what you start with, their most fun favorite objects. But then beyond that, we really want them completing familiar directions in their daily routines. And it really does start with things they do all the time. So, like, put your arm in when you're dressing them so that they are not just little limp, like newborns, that you had to just really do every single thing for them. By the time a child is 12 months, certainly, yeah, even 12 months, 12 to 18 months, they should be doing that where you're saying, you know, put your foot in when when you're holding their shoe there. They should be helping you in that process. And, again, it's a way we teach body parts, but it's certainly a way that we start to build in following requests in daily routines. And so beyond that, it would be something like at snack time or meal time. When they're finished, you should do things like give me your cup or go put your fork in the sink or – you know, giving them a wipe and letting, which, oh gosh, toddlers are just obsessed with cleaning, especially, you know, as they get closer to that 18-month to 21-month developmental level. They really, really, really want to participate in those things. So if you, you know, give them a little baby wipe or a wet cloth in the kitchen, just some kind of dish rag, you should be able to say, you know, wash you know, wash your tray or wash the help mama wash and then, you know, take that little wipe or cloth and just wipe that table down. It's something that kids like to do anyway. So that's certainly a good early request to work on. Throw your diaper away is a really, really common job that a lot of typically developing toddlers live to throw something in the trash. It's something they get great pleasure from. And you can practice that, what, ten times a day, five times a day, however often your child gets changed, depending on what's going on. So that's an easy job to incorporate, so an easy request. And how I like to talk to parents about it is let's pick out your prominent daily routines and let's teach your child at least one request initially to go with those routines. So like we've already talked about with changing, it would be throw your diaper away. With meals, it could be something like at the end, you know, give me, hand, hand me the, your spoon or give me your cup or something as simple or as basic as that. Or if they're, if they're a little further along, you know, letting them help you take a plastic dish to the sink. So that could be something. When you're getting ready to leave your house, 
go get your shoes is a perfect one, especially if your child doesn't wear shoes indoors. Or if it's still cold where you live, you know, it's still cold here in Kentucky today, even in May, which all the derby people are freaking out about because we need good weather for those horse races on Saturday. Uh, But something like go get your jacket, find your jacket, where's your jacket, and help your child really learn what those critical words are, the important words in daily routines, and following those really simple, basic directions in your daily routines. And let me just say, sometimes a parent will say, well, it's just easier if I do it myself. And I get that, but I'll I'll say to a parent, well, you do. I want them to talk or not, because part of talking is learning how to understand what words mean. And part of understanding what words mean is the opportunity to demonstrate that they understand what words mean. So do these kinds of things. Think about every, well, not every, but four or five, three, four or five routines that you do every day, you know, eating, leaving your home. Uh, We talked about changing, taking a bath, going outside to play. Whatever it is that you do in your household with your child or as a therapist, this is what you would say about that, and pick at least one little job at the beginning, one little request that you were going to commit to working on and, and practicing with your child day after day after day. Now, once they've mastered that little direction within that routine, then you give them something else to do. So if you've done throw away your diaper as a part of your dressing or changing routine, you may have them, you know, put the diaper down beside them when you're, you know, taking the dirty diaper off and say, give me your diaper. So, or hand it to them at the beginning and then wait a few seconds as you're doing something else and then say, give me your diaper and have them give you the diaper or have them help you go get the diaper in their room or wherever you keep them in your home before you change them. Or you could say, you know, have the wipes right there and say, you know, give me a wipe, whatever. Just come up with it. I, You know, pay attention to how your routines go, meaning what you do, and then come up with another little job for that. And build up to the part where you're giving them three or four different directions every single time that you do this activity and guess what kids like that so that'll become familiar and almost game-like to them and they'll anticipate it and it's so fun when you start to realize gosh his little brain is working his wheels are turning he's understanding me he's following this direction let's talk about like going outside we talked about go get your shoes or go get your jacket those kinds of things even something like open the door or after you've opened the door close the door that's a big Big one that I get a lot of fam- I talk to lots of families about these concepts, and then they'll say, "Well, man, that closing the door that has worked. He goes around closing the doors in our house now. <laughs> he understands it. He knows it. You know, you can practice that when you're about to go in the bathroom. You know, any any in his bedroom. If you're going to go in there for something, you can say, "Hey, close the door. Close the door. Even if that's not something you routinely do or something that you even think is necessary, it's a great way to work on receptive language. It's a great way to work on him understanding. Let's talk about, you know, traditionally working on receptive language would be something like a child that you say you have let, let's just go very traditional and say you're going to use a book or flashcards. And so you're saying to your child, "Point to the cup." Show me the car. That's not bad, guys, but let me just tell you, receptive language begins in everyday life that we've talked about. And for kids who are having trouble, it's not only the everyday life part, but it's the building in opportunities for practice. So they have to hear you say the word over and over and over and over, and then you have to give them something to do. So you have to teach them their little job within the context of the daily routine. And that stuff happens before we get to the you know, point to the sun or where's the train or show me the house if you were going to use a book. Now, if a child likes books and is attentive to books and will share their reading experience with you, meaning they let you actually hold the book (laughs) and talk to them as they're reading because there are lots of toddlers with delays who don't do that, they use books strictly as a self-stimulatory activity, meaning they're going to look, 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 look and flip, 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 flip without really linking meaning to what they're seeing. They're just getting kind of a visual buzz from that activity. And so, you know, if your kid likes a book and will let you sit down with them and use it, or if you're a therapist and they like a book, you can certainly do a lot of labeling and pointing and teaching new things, especially like things like animals. You know, they're not, unless you live in a very rural 
part of the country, you know, filled with farm animals, you probably aren't going to get the opportunity to teach that in everyday life, but it's something kids like and it's something they learn. So you will have to do a lot of teaching in those kinds of ways. And so books and puzzles and things that are picture-based or, you know, even apps would or television shows that's an opportunity to kind of teach that too. And so I'm not discounting those very traditional activities, but just know that those everyday routines are going to be much more beneficial, especially in the beginning, because toddlers really learn by doing. They really learn best when they're they they have they're they're doing something with their little bodies besides just listening. And again, I, I use books and puzzles and all kinds of visual information all the time to teach children. That's certainly a very valid and um, effective treatment strategy, but only after we get these other things going first. So, and let me just say, using books, a lot of times parents will say, well, I'm going to teach them to talk using this book. And so they sit down and they just point to the pictures in the book and say, what's that? What's that? What's that? Without (laughs) doing the receptive teaching first. So you've got to label the pictures in the book a long time, you know, um, here's the tiger. Oh, there's an elephant. You know, when you're talking about this as you go, you wouldn't just name 20 animals in a row and expect it to stick. You know, you'll talk about the tiger. You know, here's the tiger. Oh, look, he says, oh, look at that tiger. Oh, tiger. See his tail. Oh, let's find his feet. See his feet. That's how you would do it. You would talk about the tiger before you move on to the elephant, before you move on to the zebra. You know, and again, that's a little bit advanced vocabulary for a child who's not talking at all, but that's my point. You have to teach them and directly teach them. They're not just going to learn that's an elephant, that's a zebra, that's a penguin, that's a snake. They don't just learn that without ever hearing those words. They've got to hear you talk about it and show them and make it meaningful for them. So books are a fantastic way to teach new vocabulary, but only after they've had some real-life experiences and are following directions and daily routines a little bit more consistently. All right, let me talk about a couple of other little topics that are, that are so important with the receptive language. But these kinds of things usually happen after a child has mastered the kinds of things that we've already talked about. So let's talk. let's discuss kids who are kind of fixated on certain concepts. So let's say you have a child who's not following a lot of directions and you're you're working on that, but for whatever reason he is just totally into colors. He just loves it when you tell him the colors of objects. So and again, if you've listened to the show for any length of time or you've heard me talk live or read any of my stuff, you know that I'm not a big fan of teaching those academic concepts, you know, numbers, letters, colors, and shapes, because that comes later after a functional vocabulary. But let's just take, for example's sake, that it's you have a kid who's really so into colors. You could use colors as your your entryway, your door to working on receptive language. So if he doesn't follow a lot of commands for you, for whatever reason. You still need to be working on those functional commands like we've talked about already on the show, but you could use his little quirk, his little special interest, his even obsession (laughs) to work on receptive language. And I do this a lot with kids who are on the autism spectrum who don't do a lot of commands and daily routines, but, you know, let's say they love letters and they have magnetic letters on their refrigerator. You can start some receptive language practice by following their lead, doing what they already like, and saying to them, you know, where's a G? Find a G for me. Okay, fantastic. Oh, where's A? Show me A. And use their quirk, use their little splinter skill as a way in to really target receptive language. And a lot of times parents will have done this. They certainly know that their kid is attracted to these kinds of concepts. Or say something like Thomas. Let's say a kid is totally obsessed with Thomas the Train, and he has Thomas and James and you know, all those, all the, you know, it's 25 different trains with all different names. You could practice with him from a receptive language perspective. You know, where's James? Give me James. I think he's the red one. <laughs> he's that red train. And so I'm just saying that I think that that, in case I have incorrectly called Thomas the red train that goes in the Thomas the train set the wrong name, that's what I mean by that. So you could practice using a child's quirks that way or his special interests that way as a way to really build on 
uh, following request. Sometimes other therapists, especially our ABA colleagues, will talk about compliance with that. You can think about it in that way if you want to, and that's fine. But really what you're doing is getting a child in the habit of responding to what you've asked him to do. And so when we start with the thing that he really, really likes, he's much more likely to respond to that. So let me just back up when I'm talking about numbers, letters, shapes, and colors. Don't start with that teaching, that kind of thing, for a kid who's not showing an obvious interest in that. It's much more important that we target words that a child needs all day, every day. And certainly you would rather a child say words like bye-bye and milk and shoe and ball and mama and dada and those kinds of words you want to hear those words there is an opportunity in every child's life to use those words much more frequently than you would a color or a shape name or a number or a letter especially when they're really young one two and three so don't jump ahead if you're a parent you're thinking oh that's a great idea i'm going to teach him colors he's not talking maybe he'll talk for colors don't go there stick with that more functional everyday vocabulary first we only use those little academic concepts when a child shows us that he has a really fixated interest on that. So so we only use that when a child has really demonstrated that, hey, this is your best way in for me. This is the best way for you to get my attention. So hopefully that makes a lot of sense for you there. So use those quirks. If a child has them, if he's really, really kind of hard to engage or it's difficult to keep his attention with you, Use those kinds of things first to make your way in, to get your foot in the door, so to speak, and help him really start to follow directions. Let's talk about two-step directions because, and this is a, jumping the gun a little bit, children who are using two-step directions, you know, developmentally, they're closer to the 18 to 24-month range. So you, we've talked about the 11 skills toddlers must use before words emerge. This is not one of them. <laughs> Following simple directions and those one-step directions is what would come first. But I want to talk about two-step directions because it's really, really important for late talkers. A lot of times we kind of leave kids at that really basic level of receptive language, and we don't ever bump them up and move them along. And so as a therapist, you'll know this. You'll think, ah, oh, he's only six months behind on that. I'm just going to... Uh, that'll come. I'm just going to focus on expressive stuff and not really worry too much about this receptive delay. He'll get it. Here's my advice to you. Stop doing that. <laughs> Move a child through the receptive language continuum just as you are expressively. So you should always have receptive language goals and always keep moving along, him moving along developmentally, receptively, just like you would expressively. You would not leave a kid at the single word level, would you? No, you're going to move on to phrases. You're going to move on to sentences. Yet we do that all the time with receptive language. We think, oh, he's following some directions. He's fine. And we don't think about what that next little step would be. So it's following two-step directions. Okay, so how do you work on that? Kids have to know how to hold two pieces of information in their little minds. And frankly, they do it most of the time anyway when we're giving them even a one-step direction. There may be four or five key words in that you know go get your cup and put it in the sink so what are your key words there you know get cup and sink so you've got three words there so he's holding that in his little memory he's got that but sometimes that's a problem when we're moving on to two-step directions kids aren't really able to do that to hold that much information in their working memories so to to target this you work on it by getting them to the in-between step that a lot of kids need between simple one-step directions and bumping up to more complex two-step directions. It's just some practice with that. So you start with give me two different objects. So let's say that you've done a puzzle. So you might say something like, let's say it's a puzzle of, um, let's use our farm animal example. So you would say, give me the horse and the pig, and you hold out, you know, as you say horse, hold out one hand, and then pig, hold out your other hand because you're giving them a visual cue that, hey, I need two things here. Or let's say they're sitting and playing with uh, playing with a set of toys. Let's just say they have uh, Legos there. You know, you could say give me your block or give me your Lego or whatever it is, and, you know, if there's a car there with it, give me the car too. Or let's, they're playing with baby dolls. So you would say give me the spoon and the hat. So anything like that. And, guys, you can practice this all day. Parents can do it in the bathtub. They can do it when they're getting dressed, getting a child dressed. You can do it all throughout their day. But that's a great in-between step for kids who are having trouble moving from that really simple, familiar 
one step direction level to bumping up to that next level. You get them used to playing those kinds of games, and then you're able to bump them up to really, really following a two-step direction. So I wanted to mention that because I think it's something that we don't often talk about or teach. We kind of get kids to that one-step level and then sort of forget about receptive language because we jump too expressive. But I want to be sure that you had a little tip for that. All right, so that's the end of this show. I could go on and on and on and on about teaching receptive language because it really is one of my core issues with what I think we're missing when we work with toddlers with language delay. So I hope that this show gave you a good start. If you need more information about that, I have referenced my books, the therapy manuals that will help you, particularly Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual. But let me tell you about a couple of my DVDs. It's Teach Me to Listen and Obey 1 and 2. Teach Me to Listen and Obey 1 is for children who are under the 24-month developmental level. It also lists the important receptive language milestones. So if you're thinking as a parent, gosh, you know, I sort of understand what she's talking about, but not really, get Teach Me to Listen and Obey 1 and 2 because you'll see how to work on receptive language. And let me say one more thing before we end. When we are working on receptive language with children, you really should have very little expectations for them to talk back to you. A lot of kids can't talk and listen and learn the word at the same time. So when you see me work on receptive language, I'm not having a kid say anything. We're just working on him following the direction or giving or showing or whatever it is that he's doing with no expectations for talking, with no expectation for me hearing him say the word back. Now, some kids do need to talk to really solidify the meaning in their minds, but most of the time they don't, and you're making it too hard when you expect them to talk while you're focusing on receptive language. So I just wanted to point that out as well. All right, that's the end of this show. Next week we're going to move on and talk about vocalizing and helping a kid be noisy because that's really, really necessary for uh, these little first words to emerge too. So thanks again for joining me for today's show, and I'll uh, see you next week. Hope you see